Hi, this is Marlene from the Indie Live podcast team. This week's podcast is from a meeting that was organised back in July by the folk up in Yes Stonehaven. They asked Alec Ross to come and speak to them. Alec is a regular contributor to the Orkney News, although interestingly he lives down near Stranraer. Thanks again to both Alec and the folk up in Stonehaven for letting us have this as our this week's podcast. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for welcoming me into the group uh, and welcome to all of you virtually but warmly to this uh, this this beautiful southwest corner of Scotland where, believe it or not, they've already just about finished the, the winter barley. I don't know what yield will be like, but we've had no bad summer and I think it's to get better. As you say, Carlin, I'm, uh, I'm Alec Ross. In my day job, when I'm not writing my, my articles, uh, I'm the director of a business called Biosell Agri. I was an agent for that company for about 15 or 16 years. And I had a wee bit of an opportunity of a lifetime in 2017 to, in fact, buy the company when the outgoing director, Peter Gillard, who may join us tonight, um, he wanted to retire and he gave me the opportunity to, to buy it. So on the basis that we're only here the once, um, I ploughed a pile of savings in, into it, um, bought the business best thing I've ever done you know it's 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 been dis- despite everything that's going on business seems to be going quite well so so I thought I, I would maybe start with that folks a because you might find it quite interesting and b as I as I sometimes uh, say in the blog being a business owner is, is actually particularly in farming is quite a, a useful prism uh, through which to view the the ongoing situation around Brexit and the continuing conversation around Scotland uh, as we journey towards our nor- normality of independence. So I'm based down in, in Lockens uh, near Stranraer. I've got uh, I've got 50 or so agents, uh, distributors, and advisors. Those are the guys that do the do the heavy lifting. They get the sales. Uh, they get the commissions. They're based in the UK and all across Ireland. Um, so what we do is we don't actually make anything here. Uh, we use a number of uh, contract manufacturers in both Scotland and England uh, to make products which are either shipped uh, direct to farm or direct to distributor or in fact come to me uh, and I ship them out onto farm there myself. So so we're a small business, just a small business, but it is amazing just how how connected we are and how much we rely on people um, right across the world. And, you know, maybe we're not as connected as we were pre-2016, and we can talk a wee bit about that uh, in a minute. But to give you a wee example, uh, we supply a, a live yeast product for growing cattle and fattening cattle and for dairy cows. Um, and that uh, that ingredient actually be- begins its life in, in Lille in, in northern France. Uh, it's made by a company called La Safra, who are the second biggest um, bakery and second biggest manufacturer of its type uh, in the world. Uh, they make about 500 different strains of yeast just for making bread. So I'm a very, very, very small part of that. But I took over the business finally after agreeing to buy it in 2017. I bought it in 2018 when we were still in what I would call the Brexit uh, phony war. We used to do a wee bit of business with uh, with guys in, in Belgium and Holland uh, and Hungary. But to be honest, Brexit kind of completely stopped that. Customs was a nightmare. 
stuff wasn't getting delivered. Um, but to be fair, it wasn't particularly profitable business. But the thing was, it was fun business. And, you know, there's a big part of me just thought it was nice to think that some sheep belonging to a guy in rural Hungary uh, were actually looking a wee bit better just because he was able to phone or email a guy in Stranraer and get the stuff delivered within three days with precisely zero paperwork. And it doesn't sound like a big deal, but I look forward to having that kind of warm feeling again when we rejoin the single market and we can actually start to do, you know, we can do business again because, you know, we, we, we were taken out of this and we didn't want to get out of it. And, you know, it'd be nice to think we would, we would get there sometime after the 19th of October next year, hopefully quite soon after that. We also do um, quite a lot of business in, in the island of Ireland. The agricultural side of the yeast business is actually based in County Clare. Uh, so there's no issue really whatsoever getting the product from France to Ireland because obviously it's going from EU to EU. And it's also no bother uh, getting it up to Northern Ireland because there's no border really and, and because of the protocol. So um, try and be able to get stuff to Northern Ireland reasonably simply. And then the distributors in Antrim take care of it from there. And I often use this phrase in the in, in the blog uh, about the the frictionless border and the and the free market and free movement of people. And I always say that the miracle is in the mundane. You know that stuff's actually quite boring, but it's also quite exciting because it's miraculous because we've never noticed it uh, and, until it's gone. And it was interesting, uh, and I've probably written a bit, written a little bit about this in the, in the articles. I was over there last year, and I was reading a book by Gavin Esther, who and he wrote, and Gavin Esther from the BBC, who wrote this excellent book called How Britain Ends, which I can heartily recommend to you all. Um, and he said that the first thing that he does when he's abroad, and, and I've started doing it myself, wherever you are in the world, is turn on the local radio and or read the local paper, because that lets you take the temperature of the local issues and, and let you know what, what people were people are talking about, you know, what matters to them, because it's definitely not what you're worried about in Stranraer or Lawrence Kerr. So I travelled over there last year at the time when uh, Lord Frost was shouting about how terrible the protocol that he'd only agreed six months ago was and now would need to be altered or scrapped. And that story had completely dominated the airwaves before I left Stranraer. But by the time I got there on both sides of the border, it wasn't actually mentioned at all. And it occurred to me that it's not so much that the Irish don't like the UK government, but more that they, they don't think about them at all because they're too busy getting on with the, with the mundane things in their life. And I thought it was an encouraging glimpse about uh, what an independent Scotland's mindset might be after we go over the line uh, in late October next year. So, so despite everything, uh, I'm reasonably optimistic not necessarily about the industry as a whole, but certainly about my own wee role in it. As you all know, I mean, fuel costs are frightening, electricity costs are frightening. I've got a, a dairy farmer whose um, monthly energy costs have just gone up, his electricity cost alone has gone up from £2,000 to £4,000 a month. So he needs to find another £24,000 of sales just to stay where he was uh, in 2021. Fertiliser costs are crazy, and if you read the Scottish farmer today, they're only going to get worse because Brazil's buying a lot of uh, a lot of cheap Russian nitrogen. And the, you know, the difficulties in supply chains, whatever, Jacob Rees-Mogg might tell you, um, these aren't teething problems, these are real-time Brexit realities and they're going to be here for a while. 
But on the plus side, uh, I do think that we're going to rejoin the single market in some way, shape or form after independence. And uh, and from my own point of view, I mean, a lot of what I do is all about mitigating costs. So we're trying to help uh, farmers get more out of their home produced feed so they have to, so they don't have to buy as much compound feed. We're helping them make better use of their slurries so they don't need to buy as much hydrocarbon based fertilizer. And indeed, we're actually looking at some uh, some biostimulant products based in silica that might actually eventually, in time, uh, replace some fertilizers altogether. And if you if you read the the, the Holyrood and and then if you plans and and to be fair, the even the DEFRA plans uh, for farming twenty thirty, this is exactly the kind of sustainable models that they're uh, that, that they're talking about on a, on a daily basis. So a few of us are actually been up to to Holyrood two months from now, and we're going to have a wee blether with the farming group. But it's quite nice to be able to do that. One of the great things, one of the reasons I want the Parliament to continue is actually, while we might get frustrated sometimes, actually getting access to your, your elected representatives is quite easy. And believe me, I speak to colleagues in England when that is not the case. So it's fascinating that uh, there is probably through necessity a bit of a consensus um, forming across the industry, regardless of where we stand on the political spectrum and the constitutional issue, which can only be a, a good thing. Somebody was asking me about the Orkney thing, like, you know, what's a, what's a guy in, uh, in Stranraer doing writing for a thing called the Orkney News? Um, but I'd been up there for a wee while, and actually by the time of the referendum in, in 2014, uh, I'd already actually been doing business up there for about uh, four years. But by that time, uh, I, I joined a, a Yes group called uh, Farming for Yes, which you might have heard of. And I was up there for a show. And I remember I was on the island of Chappensee and there was uh, there was this wee uh, Yes tent. You know, it was, it was like a wee... Um, a, o- oasis of uh, of independence, you know, amongst that in, in a desert of, of no thanks badges because they're all Lib Dems up there, of course, which are just kind of Tories by a different name. Uh, but I always kept I always kept in touch, and I, and I keep in touch with the with the Yes group group up there. And a couple of years after, but not even a year, maybe one year afterwards, they they actually launched uh, an online newspaper called the Orkney News, which some of you are, are kind are kind enough to to read, and have been been writing it. Uh, ever since. It was supposed to be called Farming Matter and I was meant to write about farming and I sort of did that for a wee while and then I found myself sort of branching into into all sorts of other stuff, you know, um, and they were very good. They, they didn't tell me off, they just said keep doing it. So I, I've just kept doing it. So I talked about, you know, um, looking at the constitutional debate and uh, Scotland's future through the, through the useful prism of farming. And one of the things that I often return to uh, in the blog is this thing called the the Overton window. And this is the concept of what's accepted uh, as mainstream opinion shifts. And of course, it mainly shifts to the right. So, so for example, if you look at uh, what's happened in Westminster over the last three decades, certainly over, uh, over the last 10 years, their opinion has, has, has kind of hardened, you know, their, their, their views and things are pretty hardwired. So uh, within that Overton window, nuclear weapons uh, are good. Brexit is good, make Brexit work, get Brexit done, 
taxes can never be low enough. We should never have high taxes. You know, we should always have the monarchy. God save the Queen. Don't have a republic. You know, these things are establishment shibboleths, and of course, cannot um, can and, and cannot be challenged. And and you know, when you listen to Keir Starmer's speech a couple couple of three days ago, um, he's clearly an establishment guy as well. He's very much part of that set. Um, so he's not going to challenge any of those things. But then they've been promising to reform the House of Lords since uh, 1910, and that hasn't happened either. And if you think about the way that uh, that Jeremy Corman was monstered by the by the right wing press for suggesting in his manifesto in 2017 that a higher rate of tax of around 50% would be a good idea and renationalising the railways um, would be a good idea. The way that he was monstered by the press because of that, you know, you, you half expected Leon Trotsky to, to have written the manifesto and, and sort of walk into the room with it under his arm, you know. And then you realise that policy hasn't actually changed since because um, Tony Blair wrote pretty much exactly the same manifesto in uh, in, in you know in 19, 1997. Uh, and of course, when uh, but the window the window has moved. And of course, the top rate of tax when Thatcher came to power was actually eighty percent, and never once in her eleven years in power dropped below sixty percent. So the window has moved, um, and because of the imbalance of the the archaic um, constitutional arrangements of the of the UK, um, unfortunately, these shibboleths, this this these are this policy agenda is something that Scotland, despite you know the limited scope of devolution, gets, despite having never voted for a party that comes close to promoting these things since about 1955. Um, but in farming, uh, the the window has uh, is actually shifted. I think in, in quite a quite a positive way. As we went round the uh, the village halls in, in twenty fourteen, as as part of uh, of farming for yes, our, you know, our our big pitch to undecideds, I suppose, was the the relative importance of uh, of food uh, and farming to the the wider Scottish economy, certainly compared to England. So you know, there was a few take-home figures that are, that are work right then and they're, they're, they're still correct. Um, you know, farming and related industries, you know, that's, that's 340,000 jobs. Um, if you live in Scotland and work in Scotland, you're six times more likely to be working in an agricultural or based industry or, or one of the one of the downstream industries uh, than you are if you are if you happen to be living uh, down south. And things like whiskey, you know, we're, we're exporting um, 40 bottles a second even now, probably even, probably actually gone up. That's £120 per second um, straight into the UK Treasury. Uh, you wonder why they want to, to hold on to us. I can't work it out. And then, of course, there's this question of rural payments. You know, Scotland's a very different beast agriculturally. So, you know, 85 percent of Scotland is what we call, uh, as, as you'll know, we call it LFA, less favoured area. And of course, the 15 percent of the really good stuff is sort of roundabout where some of you guys are uh, in the east and the northeast of Scotland, where we're growing all the malt and barley and the and, and the soft fruit. And England, of course, is exactly the other way around. They they are 85 percent non LFA and 50 percent LFA. So, um, so support um for people you know working on the land and support support for the rural economy has to has to reflect that i would always argue that that's um that's as with everything um that's better decided by uh, an independent scott scottish government that uh, that the, of whatever color that, that, that we vote 
So, so in 2014, we, we didn't get um, as much traction as we would have liked amongst the the, 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 the many Tory landowners and farmers of the of the Friesland Galloway and the Borders. But but guess what? You know, the, these figures and this stuff that we're talking about is now the cornerstone of the National Farmers Union manifesto. Uh, so farming 2030, and you know, the, the, and the, the National Farmers Union is is nobody's idea. And, and I'll declare an interest. You know, my father's president of the Farmers Union six years and vice president for four, but it was nobody's idea of um, of a radical independence separatist movement. So eight years on, here we are, gone from 14 to 22, and the window has shifted in a good way. And what was sl- slightly sort of fringe has come very much front and centre. And I suppose with the, with the pandemic and with Brexit and everything else, our minds are really sort of focused uh, on food in a way that, 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 that certainly weren't even three years ago. So talking of the NFU, last month I was uh, finally, after really a couple of years, sort of working, you know, working from home like, like like a lot of people, not getting out that much. I actually got myself away for uh, for ten days. Some of it was business, um, some of it was uh, campaigning. So even though the, the thing's not kicked off yet, but you know, might as well make a start. Um, but most of all, it was fun. It was great fun, uh, and I spoke uh, to. In a few meetings on my on my, my journey, one was in Westray and in, in, in Orkney, and the other one was in um, a wee place called Lake Melm at uh, my friend Lucy's place uh, um, on the, the shores of Loch Broom near near Ullapool. So, ten days, a lot, lot of people to speak to, a lot of time to think, and uh, you know, I, I came away, I, I suppose, full of ideas, um, energized. You know, more positive, strangely, than than when I went away, because you know, firstly, I, I'd uh, I'd been a wee bit critical uh, about the about the NFU uh, in the last few years, largely because I felt that they could have done away with the the, the false equivalence, you know, and and made the case that Scotland needs access to to the single market, and uh, if if that requires independence ahead ahead of uh, rejoining the European Union then then fine you know let, let, let's do it and you know I think we should have been brave enough to say so because after all I mean it wouldn't have been unprecedented because there was there was an official line ahead of the European referendum in, in 2016 and that line of course that we should stay which is Scotland is what we voted for um so why not have one in 2014 but but you know we are who we are and I now think that um, particularly, you know, pro-Brexit, you know, the story was uh, vote no to stay in the European Union. That, cle- that clearly was a lie, didn't work out. So I think that, you know, the union in good conscience could uh, at some point between now and, and you know, a bit, a bit before the 19th of October, um, take a very strong pro-independence position if it wanted to. In fact, I, I think it should. Unions takes position in things all the time. It's, it's kind of what they're for, uh, as we've seen from the uh, from the recent um, rail dispute. But on the other hand, uh, the union still has to uh, has to play the ball as, as it currently lies. And as it currently lies, uh, a lot of the decision-making, the majority of the decision-making uh, is made in the, the lobbies of Westminster. But the... Um, the trouble is, folks, you know, because of the, the arrangement that we're in, we're, we're sort of lobbying the wrong people. Many of you guys were, were, were down in, in May there lobbying my MP, uh, Secretary of State for Scotland, uh, Alistair Jack, about food standards and se- seasonal uh, seasonal worker schemes. But the problem you've got is, of course, that's the that's the same Alistair Jack who's a, 
a fully paid up member of the, the hard Brexit European research group, which uh, doesn't seem to be very European and doesn't seem to do a lot of research. And he's also the same Alistair Jack who, who voted down the, the parish amendment on food standards um, that would have kept food standards uh, as, as the bill went, went moved through the, the houses uh, at, the, at the same level as they had been pre-Brexit. But of course, you know, they ran out of time, you know, they voted, they voted against it, absolutely hopeless. And, you know, and, and it, it needn't have been an issue, you know, um, but they voted it down. And uh, I remember saying that the, uh, to, to, you know, a bit of a sharp intake of, of breath at, at one of the one of the meetings, I forget which one, that, you know, this was this was kind of asking Alistair Jack to sort out food standards and seasonal worker schemes. It's a, it's a bit like asking an arsonist to put, put the house out in your, put the fire out in your house, you know. Um, but that's actually where we are. And uh, I, I think for as long as uh, these important things like you know food and uh and and water and energy and immigration and everything else as long as the important stuff is um outsourced to an alien political culture then we're we're kind of wasting our the time and energy of, of really talented people on people whose political philosophies are, are diametrically um opposed to, to our own which is why we have to uh, to bring our, our democracy, our Scottish democracy, home um, at the earliest possible opportunity. And you know, it looks looks like now we're we're finally going to have have the chance to to properly do it. Because you know, while areas of government like agriculture are, while they are devolved, um, the things that you know we really need to to make the thing you know grow wings and and, and really fly and, and really perform, you know, like our uh, our own uh, inclusive. Uh, immigration policy, um, like control over over food standards, um, like the power, if we wish to, um, to join the European Union. These things are, are not within our power. Uh, and until that changes, uh, there's only so much we can do. So um, the independence for me is like, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the great enabler. You know what I mean? It's, um, I've, I've used that little tagline. It's not, in, you know, it's not independence or recovery. It's independence for recovery. So there are there are three questions um, that if I was talking about farming or anything else, you know, the, these these are the three things that we um, I think uh, we need to we need to ask. And the first one is, you know, what sort of industry and indeed, you know, what sort of Scotland um, do, do we want to have? Then the, the next one is uh, and it's set question two is precisely what powers do we need to uh, to deliver those things? And, and the third question, I think, is, is even more crucial. Who's got the power? Who currently holds those powers and levers? And then, actually, uh, it becomes, you know, the, the answer becomes really quite simple. So it's not even a question as binary as, uh, as yes and no. It's actually, it's, it's, it's sort of one before that, which is who, who speaks for Scotland? We'll move away from farming a wee second. Uh, I was up in the uh, I was up in the West Highlands there, and um, I was in Goldsby, and I came I climbed the uh, Ben Braggy, a hell of a climb actually. Um, and we went up to what they call the Manny, you know, the, the the statue of the of the Duke of Sutherland, and then you know I spoke at the uh, at the, the manifest. Uh, really great event. Some of you might have been there in in, in Goldsby. And kept thinking of that, that line that I sometimes use in the, the articles from William, William Faulkner. He said, the, the, the past isn't dead, it is, isn't even past. 
talking about you know people getting cleared off the land, the clearances. And it really wasn't that that long ago. I remember I, I met a guy through my interest in, in speaking at Burns Suppers, a guy called Jerry Carruthers, who's the professor of, of Scottish literature uh, at the University of Glasgow. And he told me a story of driving through London one day and he, rec- he realised suddenly that he was outside Margaret Thatcher's townhouse. And he said he was shaking that much with anger that he actually had to stop the car and, and get out and sort of compose himself. And you could see people from the Highlands on that march feeling something similar, you know, um, standing next to this incredible, you know, nine metre, you know, statue, um, just, just, just in, incredible, you know, and that that basically just says, I, I own your arse, you know, stay where you are, know your place. It was a very, 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 very sort of powerful moment. But I was I was really shocked at, at how Brexit is 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 hitting the, the north of Scotland, is hitting the Highlands. I mean, you, there's no staff anywhere. This is all Brexit, of course. You know, you, you kind of get a drink in, uh, in the hotel in Dornoch because there's nobody to serve you. Um, there was no food in Goldsby after five o'clock. There was no food in Stromness after six. You know, and this is June and the place is heaven. So you know, folk aren't coming for the for the EU to work, and young folk who might be working there can't afford to live there. So. So we're in the shadow of the of the Manny witnessing a, a modern day clearance of a of, of a different sort, which is why I think we really need to think about who who owns the land, you know. And certainly, and the uh, the any of you guys make this made this point, you know, really well. You know, farm subsidies are, are actually a bit of a no brainer. Um, I tried to try to call Andrew Conan, you know, before I came on because he's got some really good figures about how. Incredibly small, how incredibly small part of the budget um, farm subsidies actually are. You know how, how to keep rural economies uh, alive. You know keep people on the land, allow them to keep farming. So I think there needs to be a, a bit of a, a bit, of, you know, some some pro- proper deep thinking um, about these things. It's a little bit of a tangent. Uh, great we start that I learned uh, from Leslie Riddick actually when we were when we were at the at the event. She told me when, when Norway launched uh, its constitution in eighteen fourteen, I think, and uh, extended the the franchise to all landowners. Um, that immediately gave the vote to forty six percent of the uh, of the male population. You know, it wasn't women in those days, unfortunately, but 46% of the male population got the vote. And overnight, uh, it transformed democracy uh, in a country, you know, of a, of a similar population uh, as Scotland. By passing the uh, the Great Reform Act in, in 1832, well, that enfranchised precisely 2% of the adult population. Uh, and in Scotland, it was closer to, to 1%. So in, in Britain, in the UK, uh, and seems particularly in Scotland, uh, land and therefore power uh, has always been concentrated in a very small number of people who are loath to give give up even the smallest uh, amount of it. And of course, that's you know that that's got you know an enormous uh, you know it's got enormous you know knock on effects as well into uh, affordable housing and young folk can't afford to stay there, so they have to move away. And you know that that should that shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't be a moving people. We should be a staying people. Move if you like, but we ought to at least have have the choice. Um, Another thing that maybe we should be thinking about, uh, you know, but these are good conversations to be having, particularly with undecided voters, I think, um, is thinking about the you know devolving powers as far as you, as we possibly can. I mean, I I often think that the 
the low turnout that we get in elections doesn't necessarily mean that we're naturally more lazy or apathetic than people in other countries. But, but I think that people just do the math and realise that we're we're actually really far, far away a lot of the time from uh, decision makings and, and places and people of, of influence. So, you know, so for example, in the Highlands, you know, we've got one local council that looks after an area the size of Belgium, you know, um, you know about, about only about one in 2,000 people uh, in Scotland actually hold uh, elected office. If you go somewhere like Sweden, it's one in 81. And the reason for that is that uh, even the tiniest wee village, you know, a place the size of, of where I stay, around the Stenrar, places like that have got incredible power. So therefore, if you, you turn out, you vote for them and, and things get done. So, you know, it's no coincidence that the turnout in the last round of of, local, of Sweden's local elections was 97%. In fact, it's always 97%, just like we saw in, in, in 2014. If you if, if we can offer people uh, a prospectus of, uh, of of genuine, you know, concrete, game-changing change, uh, then folk will turn out. You know, and they did. You know, folk turned out in the millions in 2014. So... So, yeah, get independence, yeah, definitely. But keep going from there. You know, keep devolving it as much as we can and, and really uh, empower people. But that, one of the ways to do that is uh, is to get everybody around the table and, you know, thrash out a, a constitution that, that, you know, that, that, that will legally promise that. But whatever happens, folks, we're, we're going to have a, we're going to have a fresh vote, which is, uh, which is brilliant. But I just published a wee, uh, a wee piece uh, on the 20, 2023 launch and my thoughts on it yesterday. And I thought, folks, that's probably my 20, 25 minutes, half an hour up. And I don't want to lengthen the evening or, or, or shorten the summer. But I thought I would just finish this little bit of the excellent meeting by reading you just a wee extract from it. And then I'll, um, I'll hand, you, hand you back to the chair. My hunch has long been that when Scotland's independence is delivered in the next couple of years, Nicola Sturgeon will know precisely what to say. And I suspect that one of her primary concerns will be to reach out to the significant minority who voted to stay within the UK and to reassure them that they will not be left behind, that we are all Jack Thompson's bairns, that we are all a broad church, that if she continues as First Minister in the post-referendum era, something that isn't certain, there will be new parties new politicians, a written constitution, and perhaps the dissolution of parties on both sides having lost their raison d'etre. She will be Scotland's leader first, party leader second, something that she's always been admirably clear about. And that mindset, that ability to read the room, has been very much in evidence this last month as Scotland's independence endgame begins. She knows that despite or because of the pandemic, the increasingly disruptive impact of Brexit and the ongoing cost of living crisis, which made her pitch of comparing a number of countries without Scotland's plentiful resources outperforming not just economically, as Scotland within the United Kingdom, a very savvy piece of political oratory. And presenting it without the razzmatazz that was the hallmark of her predecessor and instead announcing it as just another piece of government business, which, after all, it was, seemed to immediately disarm her opponents. You don't need to be a supporter of either the First Minister or the Independence Agenda to acknowledge an unarguable logic delivered soberly and clearly whilst acknowledging the reality that it could be legally problematic. This was a really, really clever piece of political strategy. In that context, what, what she followed the launch with last week shouldn't have surprised anyone, but it did.
and how. Okay, I'll be honest here. I never saw that one coming. Like, not in a million years. I mean, using a little-known Scotland Act clause to refer the question straight to the Supreme Court and at a stroke, shortening the process, removing any debate about legality, regardless of ruling, and guaranteeing three separate and different routes to a fresh vote, Section 30, lawful referendum or plebiscite election. So it turns out there was a plan B after all, and a plan C. It was brilliant. And the consequences already are significant. Some critics, perceiving a lack of urgency and impatient for a fresh vote, said that the new announcement was just show that the heart wasn't really in it. Wednesday's announcement proved that, on the contrary, when she promised a new vote two years ago, not only did she mean it, but she then spent from then to now running down the options, concentrating on the detail and acting in a way that completely wrong-footed the Prime Minister, further distracted, further distracted by fresh scandal. Seriously, she is playing them off the park. For Yes supporters, Wednesday was the equivalent of anticipating a Drich stalemate, but instead watching your best player score a worldie from halfway. Incredible, just brilliant, game on. And the message couldn't be clearer. We're in it to win it, even if it means a de facto referendum in a general election in 2024 or sooner, if and when Johnson goes. And it would be well nigh impossible for unionist parties to boycott a UK-wide vote. But the real genius lies in the taking of taking the legality of a referendum out of a political bear pit and into the cold, hard logic of the law court. And all those folk talking about Catalonia and wildcat referendums have suddenly gone offy, offy, quiet. The upcoming vote feels more prescient, and it will be interesting to see what, if anything, the champions of the status quo offer as a side hustle. It certainly can't be that we're better out with the EU, because if everybody now knows that's no true. And it can't be that trade with your neighbours will be problematic and difficult, because our friends in Ireland daily experience a completely different reality to that. So while it would be wrong to say the events of the last few weeks have made independence inevitable, we must never stop making the case after all. The take-home is that we now have three different clear routes to October's vote that will, finally, lead to rejoining the world as a fully functioning, modern, democratic and self-determining country. Let's get it done, people, because here's the thing. It's later than you think. So, that's my bit. Apparently there's a secret UK government poll putting yes at 72%, but, um, but we need to... We need to campaign, I think, like it's 50-50. We kind of get complacent. So we need to make the arguments. We need to make new arguments. We need to keep making them, and then we have to make them again. So a little bit, uh, the final word, I think, goes to the manager of my favourite uh, football team, Celtic manager, Ange Postacoglu, who always says to his players, we never stop. Opposition can stop when they want, but we never stop. So we must never stop. OK, but I'm going to stop. Okay, thank you so much, Alec. Um, I'll, I'll thank you properly at the end, uh, but that was that was wonderful. Thank you, and lots of information for everyone to take in. If you're okay, Good. we'll have a few questions. I think there's been a few questions in the chat. You've talked a lot about the farmers there, and I've got a couple of questions on the, on farmers. But this one was, what do you think would shift the opinion to independence? Uh, for farmers, what do we need to do? Is it policies? Is it uh, is it demonstration of 
uh, being on their side. Uh, what is it in particular? Obviously, I'm you know I'm based down in the uh, in the southwest of Scotland. Um, I used to, I used to drive you know all the way from Stranraer and Fries and somewhere into the borders, and all I all I saw. Uh, and, and you see it in every election since the referendum in 2014. It's just blue signs, vote Alistair Jack, blue signs, blue signs, blue signs. So it's pretty, it's pretty hardwired. Um, a lot of them don't actually know why they're Tories, but they always kind of, they always kind of have been. And so there's a lot of kind of i, I binary going on. A big part of the, the Tory stroke no vote in a, a, in farming is is actually age age demographic. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a, because because farmers are no different from you know whether you're a 60 year old postman or a, or a you know a 65 year old farmer. Uh, as you go, as you get further in your life, I mean, you're statistically more likely um, to, to 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 vote for the vote for the status quo. But I think to answer your question, um, what we can do is just say to them, look, yeah, you know, yes, yes, are wrong, you know. And I do, I do think that, funnily enough, there's some there's some good stuff coming from from, from some unusual uh, unusual sources. So, for example, Quality Meat Scotland are actually quite quite good on this, um, and they've got some sort of great figures on. Um, you know, here's the uh, here's the domestic market um, for Scottish produce, but domestic, I mean UK, and here is the an incredibly disruptive um, drop in uh, in exports to the EU um, post post Brexit. So I think it's actually I think it's actually getting those uh, getting those sorts of those sorts of me messages across. Um, but doing it, doing it kind of in a kind of you know not uh, use a wrong kind kind of a way, you know. I think that the other thing we'll do it is I, I don't think the despite Brexit now being pretty much the new reality, the uh, the prices actually are still kind of holding up, you know. And I think once they once they inevitably start to drop, um, that's going to you know that, that that's going to change things. And the other thing I think I think one of the, the real challenges facing particularly dairy farmers, fruit farmers, but but let's say particularly dairy is um, is labour. There's labour. They really, really cannot get people to work on farms at the moment because people from the EU are not coming. There's a really strong argument to be made and said, look, you know, um, we really need the single market. And one of the reasons we need the single market is for, is for free movement of people. Because once we get that, that takes away your labour problem at a stroke. And I think that would be a, that would be a strong argument. Scottish government gearing towards an independent referendum. Do you think mm. they ambitious enough with the recently passed Good Food Nation Bill that took eight years and has failed to deliver um, incorporate the right to food in Scots law, the kind of ambition of who Scotland want to be, and also have failed to put sectorial measures in for things like child obesity, half and child obesity by 2030, and also just on the land reform, just to, to kind of bring it in. So Ireland, you talked about Leslie Didda, this is something that Leslie actually spoke to you about a long time ago. So Ireland, one of the countries that we're comparing ourselves to as an independent nation, the game changer there was the 1870s to 1909. They changed the, the land laws. So tenant farmer, it swung, you know, by 20, 1929, I think it was, it flipped the other way for land ownership rather than tenant farmers. That raised people's heads, raised their ambition. It, you know, there was a rising, there was a cultural rising, there was a political rising, but there was a, a rising of people's confidence in themselves, exactly what we need to be doing in Scotland, starting to have self-confidence in ourselves. So do you think the Scottish government in this planning have actually been ambitious enough to actually capture people's attention that it will be more than a nameplate change? 
That's a very good question. I, 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 sus I suspect, I strongly suspect that they have not. We need to go much, much further, you know, because my feeling has always been that when we held the vote uh, in 2014 and we, and not we, but the Scottish government at the time published the 600 odd page white paper, the big phrase that keeps coming through my mind for that is don't scare the horses. That seemed to be the, the over that was the overriding thing, you know. Don't scare middle Scotland, you know, don't 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 scare the don't scare the Conservatives, um, don't scare the rich people, all, all the rest of it. I think a lot of people look at look at that and you know, and, and keep keep the Queen, keep the pound, all that stuff as well. People look at this and say, well, what what actually is going to change? I would go the other way. I'm like you, be as ambitious as you can possibly be. And and enshrine it, uh, enshrine it in a constitution. That's what we're, this is what we need to do. I think radical mm. change can be safe change if it's positioned correctly. You look yeah. at Mary Lou McDonald and Michelle O'Neill; they're mm. normalising change. They're seeing changes happening. You know, Absolutely. they're normalising yeah. it. And mm. I think that is what we need to do. And certainly in Commonweal, this is what we are doing: is trying to put out costed policies, costed yeah. planning, so people feel safe that the work has been done. Yeah. And it's not yeah. it's not a, a sound bite or a you know a, a jump into the dark. It's something that's a safe change, and this is really important. It's 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 it's, it's a really it's a, it's a really good point. I mean, because you know one of the one of the things that I would I would like uh, because I think one of the things that maybe we didn't do the last time um, is I know that there were a, a lot of very um, clever people, a lot of very informed people who weren't asked for their opinion. You know, we cannot afford not to not to have those ideas and one of the from those people and um there was actually one, one of the arguments i would i would love us to make a bit more strongly uh, isn't so much that yeah we've got to move on from um yes yeah, scotland scotland can afford to be independent the very the very fact that you say that suggests that there's a doubt there you know what we need to be saying is that uh, scotland cannot afford to stay where it is Within within this union, and I would rec I would recommend to everybody. Uh, you've probably done it already, but there was a there was a wonderful article. It's always a wonderful article by Richard Murphy, the Economist, who was I think he was maybe writing the National. He was certainly writing in his blog, and um, he was doing this thing. I mean, who who thought numbers could be so exciting, you know? But he was writing about inflation. And um, you say, yeah, well, inflation is going to go to probably about 11% or something, something like that. Um, now, obviously, that means that, you know, cost of, cost of living goes up, but it also means that the, um, the VAT take by the UK Treasury goes up as well. So they have a bigger pot of money. But because of the peculiar um, constitutional arrangement that we've got vis-a-vis um, -vis the block grant and the, and the Barnett formula, um, that percentage of the extra VAT that would become Scotland, actually there's an adjustment in the block grant. I went to my news agent two days ago and um, the front page of the, like we're back in time, it was like the front page of the record was Scotland, two, two, two million black hole, you know, and, and you think, shit, is it 2014, you know? Um, but, I, but actually, uh, what Richard does very cleverly he actually rather than gets upset about it he says well what's what's the story here let's fact check it and actually the reality is that there is a bit of a two billion pound black hole now of course there is no such thing as a black black hole in scotland per se because legally we have to balance our books um but what he's saying is that um, you know if the block grant stays at whatever it is 56 billion but inflation is running at 11 percent um then that is that is de facto um a two billion pound cut which we have to find from um from other from other budget areas and of course as an independent country if there's inflation of eleven percent then we then we get to keep all of that.
and and not have a two 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 billion pound black hole. So I would these are the sort of arguments I would like to be to be seeing made, and I think it goes back to that thing about guys, you know, because you, you can't it's like you can't you can't have your cake and eat it. You want and, and to go back to Andy's uh, quick question about the farmers, um, it's you know we should really be saying to them what uh, you know those three questions again. Um, what do you, what do you want? Um, what powers do you need to achieve it, and how many do we currently have? And there's a disconnect between questions two and three because we don't have the powers over immigration, we don't have the powers over over food standards, over rejoining the EU trade deals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was just because obviously we've now got Brexit and the difficulties with freedom of, of goods as well as freedom of movement of people that you mentioned. I just wondered ways that Brexit might be weaponized against us. And so one of those ways I thought was maybe, you know, it might be said that, oh, there's going to be border controls between Scotland and England. It's going to, or there's going to be border controls um, for Scottish goods, you know, going into, to, going over to mainland Europe. So that was my question about, would we maybe need new ferry routes to try and circumvent that? Or, you know, what solutions, what arguments can we put to, because I think there'll be all these sort of straw man arguments about, about Brexit against us. Yeah, yeah. That's a, good, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. Whoever asked it, it's a great question. Um, yeah, uh, it's. Uh, I listened to the the Big Light podcast, the top media podcast, every Thursday, and they, they did they did a thing about borders a few weeks ago, and, and Stuart Cosgrove made a very good. Uh, I thought it was quite. I thought it was actually quite funny. Um, it was getting quite perceptive. He said that you know when um, when people and particularly unionists talk about borders, you know. They almost kind of they bring up this uh, this this idea, this concept, this picture of like a Graham Greene novel set in the Cold War. You know, there's a guy with a gun and there's a you know there's a fence and, and dogs and stuff like that. But actually, in reality, um, there's borders all over the world, and, and most most people just you know people in America go to Canada to work and vice versa, and it's it's you know it's it's fine. And the experience of Ireland was I I actually I was over there quite recently, and the guy was with said, "You realise we've crossed the border six times today? You wouldn't know." Until you stop for petrol and it's in euros and you know rather rather, rather than pounds, um, there's a very there's a very good um, Twitter feed which I think I might have shared a bit on the on the blog, and this guy goes through all these things you know the border legality EU membership um, currency the monarchy all these things. Um, I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you what he says about the border. It's quite. It's, I thought it was quite good. Uh, it's very. It's, it's very concise. Um, and he just says England is Scotland's biggest export market. Um, Scotland is England's second biggest export market after the USA. It will be in both countries' economic interest to have as seamless a border and as easy an administration as possible. In any case, the world has many borders and folk trade just fine. And in Scotland's case, we've had a border, we'd have a border with 60, 60 million folk while dismantling the one uh, with 500 million folk behind it. A border that got flustered upon us by a political party that we rejected in 1955. So that's verbatim what he said. So it's it's, it's and it, and you know and you don't even have to say yeah well you know where's where's all where's all the renewables you know where where's all the water you know where's 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 all the whiskey where where where, where is it all you know it's 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 all there. Of course you're going to want to trade with us. Uh, Douglas Chapman, who's is he an SMP? He's an SMP um, MSP. 
Alison just said in relation to Rachel's question and about the ferries and so on, he's been spending a lot of time on this and working with the Irish team who developed, delivered their roll-on, roll-off direct ferries route mm. to Europe to circumvent Brexit issues. So, so there's work going on at the moment. The, the Recife link's opening up on freight and they're planning to get passengers back as the next step. Yep. So that's, you know, again, that, that used to be there. So mm. we're doing a lot of work with, with the Irish team on that. You know that Burnsian phrase about seeing ourselves as others see us, you know? I thought the the, 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 the climate change summit in, in Glasgow was very, very interesting. You know, you, you know, Tories were frothing at the mouth because Nicola Sturgeon, everybody wanted this, all these world leaders wanted a selfie with her, you know? Whenever we think about the climate change summit, I, I thought it was a really good example of how to develop soft power, you know? And and think and think about who your partners are going to be in the in the future. And I know that she's been she's been she and others have been quite busy, you know, building these Scottish government hubs uh, in in Europe, you know, in the Nordic countries and things like that. So I I, I'm, I'm, I, I think I think like the ferries, there is a there, there is a lot of building going on. I'm all for direct ferries from Scotland. I mean, I think that's that's brilliant because apart apart from anything else, of course, if uh, I think I'm right in saying if a if a Scottish export heads to the EU through Hull and goes to Zeebrugge and because it's left an English port, it's, um, it's considered an, an English uh, export. You know, so part of that is about a bit of sophistry to um, to make us look uh, a wee bit uh, too wee and too poor and too stupid. Is EFTA not a best better option? Um, for a nation of our Scotland's size and resources, it's been pretty successful for the the um, for Norway and um, the the mm -hmm. Icelandic nations. What? Why? Why would it not be um, a better option for us? Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it may it, it may it may well be uh, that 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 is that you know that that that, that is a, a a better option than full membership of the of the EU. I would be slightly nervous uh, in putting the prospectus towards the towards the voters and the people of Scotland to say right part of our independence vote is rejoining fully the EU. I think that's a little bit too much, you know. I think we need to take a little bit of a deep breath. Um, but what I would like is. Uh, once we've actually, I would certainly be saying we, we we need to rejoin the single market, but I think that's a that's a conversation that we we should be having shortly after uh, the nineteenth of October next year. But you may well be right. If after might after might be a better fit for us. You could be right. Um, let's talk about that after after um, we get the let's let's not not talk about it, but let's talk about talk about it properly and put it as a, as a, as one of a number of options um, to the people. Once we're, um, you know, once we're over the line, but I like, I like EFTA. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be cool with that. One of the most exciting things, in fact, possibly the most exciting thing for me, isn't necessarily the vote itself, but, but what, you know, what shakes down, you know, what, what, um, what our independent Scotland actually looks like, you know, what, what the political consensus is, because I think that could surprise us a little bit as well. And it's, you know. To me, that really gets people engaged. There's no folks saying about well, I didn't like Nicola Sturgeon. The SNP has been hopeless in education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, I, I wrote some. You know, what happens to the SNP? Frankly, who cares? You know, um, completely new political landscape. SNP disbands or, or, or reinvents. Um, there's no unionist parties. There, there might be there be right wing and left wing parties, but there wouldn't be unionist parties because there's no union. You couldn't have parties from other countries. New parties, new politicians, new people, fresh constitution. You know, brilliant. That's really exciting. And I don't care who you are. 
if that doesn't make your heart jump a wee bit faster, then uh, I can't help you. I didn't care what's wrong with you. Absolutely, Alec. Great, great last point. Thanks for listening, everybody, and join us again next Friday.